Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our new series, Walking Through the Book of Deuteronomy, and here Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers will begin diving into chapter one. Do keep in mind our upcoming regional course here in Birmingham, Alabama. That will be on May 19th and 20th, as Peter Lightheart teaches through the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles in our course titled The Death and Resurrection of David. For more information and to register, there's a link in the show notes, as well as links to all of our upcoming events, including our regional courses on psalm chanting and our summer conference. We trust that you'll enjoy this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers discussing the book of Deuteronomy. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers and Alistair Roberts. James Bijan, who is a regular on the podcast, was not able to join us for this recording. Uh, so we, uh, we're looking forward to having him back and helping us with Deuteronomy. Uh, Brian Motes is uh, recording and will be editing and smoothing everything over. Very grateful for Brian's per- contribution to the podcast. Uh, without Brian, the podcast would never make it to you. We just sit here talking to each other and would never be distributed. So thank you, Brian, for the, the contribution you make. Uh, we started a new series last episode and we began talking about the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, and we talked about some of the basic introductory questions about Deuteronomy we talked about some a little bit about the critical uh, issues surrounding Deuteronomy and the claim that uh, Deuteronomy is a was produced as a kind of forgery during the reign of Josiah, the book of the law that's found in the temple. This is the theory, at least. The book of the law that's found in the temple was actually concocted by priests, written by priests at that time, and put in the in the uh, written in the voice of Moses. Uh, one of the primary intentions was to try to centralize everything into Jerusalem. And so Deuteronomy 12, which talks about the centralization of the sanctuary, the establishment of a single sanctuary, that was kind of the ideological center of this priestly movement in the reign of Josiah and trying to shut down all of the all of the competitors, all the competitive shrines around the land and bring everything to Jerusalem. Uh, that's uh, for critical scholars, that's that is the setting in which uh, Deuteronomy arose. Uh, we believe that Deuteronomy was delivered as a series of speeches or sermons by Moses as Israel is camped on the plains of Moab uh, toward the end of Moses' life, and uh, that what he's saying is uh, what he's been commanded to say by Yahweh. He speaks everything according to all that the Lord had commanded to give him, according to Deuteronomy 1.3. In other words, we believe what the text itself says about itself, uh, that that's the origin Today, we're going to plunge into Deuteronomy chapter 1, and let me give a quick overview. This isn't any slick overview, no chiasm, but it does raise a puzzle that I think is an interesting one for for this chapter and maybe for the whole of Deuteronomy. After after the first few verses of setting the scene, the place and the time of when Deuteronomy is delivered, Moses begins speaking, and he reminds them of things that have happened in the past. And all of chapter one is about things that have happened in the past. It starts in Horeb, Mount Sinai, but it starts at the end of Israel's sojourn at Sinai. So the the first thing that Moses uh, reminds them of is the Lord telling them, you've stayed too long at this mountain. That's in Deuteronomy 1.6, and the command to go. 
So that goes from uh, verses six through eight. And uh, you expect a command is given, go and uh, leave Horeb, go up to the Mount of the Amorites and take possession of the land that I give you. And you expect if the, you know, the narrative works according to the way many other narratives do in the Bible, you expect something that's going to uh, describe compliance with that command. The word says go, and the next verse is Israel goes. Instead, we have this interruption, verses 9 through 18, where Moses describes the burden that he had in ruling the people and how that burden was shared with judges. So we have the appointment of judges that intervenes between the command to leave Horeb and their actual leaving, uh, which is narrated in verse 19. So there's a command to go, there's an interruption with uh, selection of men, and then there's a, a narrative of them going. And then you have the same cycle again. Moses, they get to Kadesh Barnea, and Moses says, go into the land from Kadesh Barnea and possess the land the Lord has given you. And instead of immediately having a compliance, uh, we have a brief interruption where, again, certain men are selected for a certain task. In the case of the judges, it's Moses who proposes it, and the people respond by saying, that's a good idea. Here, the people propose it, and Moses thinks it's a good idea. In both cases, you're selecting men for a particular task, of judges in the one case, spies in the other case. So there's a, there are parallels between the two, as it were, the interruptions, the, uh, verses 9 through 18, the selection of the judges, and then verses 22 through 25, which is the report about the spies. And then following that interruption, you have the continuation of the story. Moses says, go up. Uh, you have the, the spies selected, and you expect, especially based on the spies' good report, you expect the people to obey. Uh, but instead, they're not willing to go up. And from verse 26 to the end of the chapter, uh, we have the story of Israel's rebellion at Kadesh. So you have this kind of rhythm. You go through a couple of cycles of command, selection of men for a particular task. That's not directly related to the command. Then compliance with the command. That's the first cycle. The second cycle is a command selection of men to be spies, and then non-compliance with the command. And I think part of the part of the reason why these the text is set up this way is to emphasize the shock of verse 26, the fact that they're not willing to go up. You expect a, you expect compliance at that point in the in the narrative, but you you get the opposite. The puzzle that I that I was I was working with was why does Moses begin the the longest, the first lengthy section reviewing Israel's history is in verses 9 through 18, which is about the selection of judges. And that seems an odd place to start to review Israel's history. If somebody asked me to review Israel's history, I'd probably go back to Abraham. If I wanted to begin from the Exodus, otherwise I'd begin from the Exodus. Or you begin from Mount Sinai with the giving of the Ten Commandments. That's not where Moses begins. He, he begins after the Ten Commandments have been given, after the golden calf incident, right when they're ready to leave uh, Sinai. And then he has this lengthy section where he's talking about the judges. Uh, one thing that um, occurs to me is that this kind of justifies the idea that Deuteronomy is given in part as an instruction manual for leaders. We talked about last time the variety of material that's in Deuteronomy. It's not just law, it's narrative, it's festival instructions, it's covenant making, uh, it's a song. It has all of these elements. But the fact that Moses puts the selection of judges right up front in the book, perhaps is an indication that that's one of the main interests of the book, is to prepare the kind of men who are wise and discerning and experienced 
who can judge rightly and judge justly. And it certainly raises the issue, issue of justice in Israel right at the beginning of the book, because the men who are supposed to judge are supposed to judge rightly and fairly. One note on that association of the um, two groups of people, the judges and the spies, would be the fact that the spies are representatives of Israel. They're not just random warriors. They're heads. Each of them are heads within their tribe. And so it's a representative act that they're engaged in that is political, not just a a military operation. Um, They're not just engaged in some um, act of espionage. They're inspecting the land on behalf of their people of their different tribes and so those two acts and um, the choosing of the the judges and the appointment of these spies there is maybe a greater similarity than we would think if we were just thinking of it as um, some military operation that had to be undertaken yeah i was thinking of that too these are the guys that failed so the reason that Moses includes this right up front is back in Numbers 13, when the spies are sent out, they came back and reported to the congregation. Well, who did they report to? They reported to these men that Moses had appointed to be leaders, to be uh, tribal uh, judges. And these are the men who decided that they're not going to go up because of the Anakim or, or because it's just too hard. So I think what he's doing here is, is saying uh, these, these are the leaders that failed. And now we're ready to enter into the promised land with a new set of leaders, Caleb and Joshua being two of the prominent ones at the end of the chapter. And so you're not going to make the same mistakes, are you? Um, don't do that. Um, because look what happened when you did. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you have you have a sense, in a sense you have a whole apparatus set up to govern Israel uh, with these chosen men, and then as you say at Kadesh, that apparatus, that whole structure collapses because they don't they don't they don't want to go into the land. So uh, it's it's the death of a world, as it were. It's the death of a political world uh, that happens at Kadesh, and then uh, Israel is going to have to be reborn in order to enter the land. I'm I'm also struck by, as you can't help but be in Deuteronomy, the the figure, the stature, the prominence of Moses here. Um, in the last podcast, I talked about Moses being, you know, a paradigm of priestly instruction, elucidation, application of the law, and I think that's true. Uh, and right when I finished that comment, I realized that. Uh, Moses is presented mainly in Deuteronomy as the paradigmatic prophet, especially at the end. There's never been a prophet like him face to face with the Lord, signs and wonders in Egypt. So there's this prophetic dimension that Moses has. But there's also Moses, the leader. Moses as his royal, he's a royal figure. He's he's leading people. He's he's uh, appointing uh, administrators tribal judges. Um, and, and Moses also is something of a model of how a leader, a leader of a nation ought to rule, ought to, ought to serve his people. Uh, even when you get, I think, to Deuteronomy chapter 17, where the king is required to meditate, to read and meditate on the law. Well, that's what Moses has done. <laughs> Moses has been 
meditating on this law. And that's why we have Deuteronomy, because he's meditating on it and thinking about the present situation and how it applies to them now. And then he um, he preaches, he sermonizes on the law and makes it clear what that means for them at that point. Well, that's what kings should do too. So there's a there's a priestly, a prophetic, and a kingly kind of function of Moses. But I mean, you can't, reading through the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is a, a big deal. Might also be worth thinking about the ways that um, this is an example of how history is supposed to function within scripture. Um, this isn't just a recounting of events. It's a sort of preaching and exhortation to Israel to act in a particular way in the future, in the light of what has happened in the past. Um, there's an understanding of the history of the Exodus as exemplary as um, something that is um, provides, first of all, a model for what will happen in the future. Um, and it provides warnings and it provides things that need to be followed too. And so the way that we handle scriptural history, I think we have something of a paradigm here. Moses is not just in giving this historical prologue, um, filling us in on some sort of backstory. This is preaching and it helps us, I think, to see how we're supposed to handle the narrative parts of scripture. Um, Paul does something very similar in 1 Corinthians 10, where he presents the experience of Israel in the wilderness in a mold that very clearly highlights the analogies between it and the experience of the church. And what Moses is doing here is mobilizing the story of the wilderness period for Israel as it's about to enter into the land. And so it's history as exhortation and challenge, not just history as we would tend to think about history in this very narrow sense of the facts. I'm struck by the instructions that the Lord gives at the beginning of this uh, narrative. Beginning in verse 6, Moses begins recounting what was happening in Horeb and then eventually at Kadesh. Uh, but the command that the Lord gives to them uh, as they go out uh, is to turn and go up to the hill country of the Amorites or to the mountain of the Amorites. The, the word har or mountain hill is singular there. It's like they're moving from one mountain into another mountain, from the mountain of covenant making into the mountain of their inheritance. What he's done, he sends them off, but he's given the land to them. The verb in verse 8 is, in my New American Standards, translated as place. But the Hebrew verb is natan, which means to give. Uh, and that's the verb that's used frequently throughout the chapter about to describe what the Lord has done. It's like uh, it's like the land is sitting there uh, as a gift ready to be unwrapped. The Lord has already given it to them. And all they need to do is go in and possess it. Um, it's, it's already a gift. So it could, the command to leave and go up to uh, the Mount of the, Mount of the uh, Amorites that command is a command that has its fulfillment in the fulfillment of the promise. It's fulfilled in the reception of a gift. Um, and then also the, the fact that we have the reference to the Lord's oath in verse 8. Uh, he swore an oath to give this land to your fathers. That's Natan again. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their seed after them. So uh, the Lord has promised by oath that this land will be theirs. They already have a claim to the land. They just need to make that claim. 
Uh, and that claim is supported by Yahweh's oath. That that oath is going to come up later in the chapter again. There's a reference to the Lord's oath uh, to give them the land that, that's that's repeated. Uh, but then later when Israel rebels, there's a, there's a contrary oath. He's going to take an oath to exclude them from the land. Uh, and he's going to keep them from keep them from entering uh, until the that generation dies off. So uh, a number of the things that are going to happen in the following narrative are set up by this command uh, at Horeb, tell, the Lord telling the people to leave from there to go up to the Am- the place of the Amorites. Reading this chapter, I'm very um, struck by the way that it presents the nation as a moral agent. Um, the whole body of people. And we can very often read um, scripture focusing upon ourselves as individual moral agents. And yet the um, challenge that Moses presents here is to the people as a collective under their leaders. And so there is um, maybe a challenge to think about our nations, our our churches, our um, whatever our families, or whatever communities we're part of, not just as, as individuals, as moral agents who are responsible as collectives to uh, uphold the law of God. And it's important to notice as we go through the book of Deuteronomy that much of the law is not actually addressed to the private individual. It's addressed to rulers and judges, to those who would actually maintain the standard of the law within the land. And as we're going through scripture more more broadly, I think we see the same sort of thing. A lot of scriptural instruction is addressed to church leaders in particular and the community that needs to maintain its um, purity is not necessarily going to maintain its purity through each and every individual just doing their own private tasks, but through the collective body and its leaders taking responsibility to bind themselves as a group to the standards of the the law that we have. We see something similar in the beginning of Revelation in the letters to the churches, that these are behaviors of the whole congregation. Um, It may be just a few people within the congregation, but the failure of the congregation to deal with that sin in somewhere like 1 Corinthians 5 compromises the whole body of people. And so that sense of collective responsibility and agents and moral agency, I think is one of the aspects of um, Moses' teaching that maybe we should give more attention to as we go through the book. Yeah, it's it's not only collective, but it's an intergenerational collective. And one of the one of the recurring turns of phrase uh, is for Moses to address the people that are in front of him as people who have seen the things that the Lord has done all the way back in Egypt. For example, in verse 30, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And he's talking to, at this point, he's talking to a generation, some of whom were alive at the time of Egypt, Moses was obviously, and some others, but many of the people that he's talking to never saw that happen. They weren't, uh, they aren't, they don't have eyewitness experience of Egypt, they don't have eyewitness experience of the Lord uh, carrying them through the wilderness as the Lord as as a man carries his son. Uh, that's uh, that's what's said in verse thirty one. In the wilderness, you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. Well, some of them didn't see that, and yet they're addressed as if they had because their ancestors had done. 
So they would know they would know about this not by eyewitness uh, eyewitness uh, uh, experience. They would know this by the testimony of their parents, by tell, the telling stories about Egypt, by telling the stories about manna and other events that the Lord, uh, the wonders that the Lord did over the past 40 years. So it, it's a, an intergenerational collective. It's a collective. He's addressing the people, but he's addressing the people as they pass through time. In the last podcast, Peter, you talked about the vision of, of Yahweh, of the Lord that's presented in Deuteronomy, I think it's always appropriate. This is kind of an old Bobby's Bible study technique, but it works is to th- ask, you know, what do we learn about God here? What do we learn about God in this chapter? What's what's being revealed about who the Lord is? And one thing that strikes me about Deuteronomy, we can put it in in the we can structure it according to suzerainty treaties. I get that. I think it's some value there, but Yahweh is not just your typical ancient Near East suzerain. Um, there's, uh, he's not just you know a mighty king that's going to defeat um, the enemies and have vassals to command. So, I mean, if you're if you're reading through this chapter, for example, uh, the Lord is speaking to His people, uh, and He's showing some concern for them. You know, if you've been around on this mountain long enough so let's let's get moving it's time to set out um he is making uh through moses available to them a um a a culture where they can uh get disputes settled uh so he's setting up people to help them uh adjudicate matters uh and and then he's also he's giving them this land, so he's gracious. He's this is this the Lord your God is giving you all this land. He set the land before you, verse twenty one. He's the God of your fathers. Don't fear. He's promising to be with them. And then this amazing statement in verse thirty one that they should have recognized it in the wilderness uh, that Yahweh their God carried them, carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. So there's this, there's this emphasis on the grace, the mercy, the love, the care of Yahweh for his people. And that's, that comes first. Um, that's before he commands them. That's before he uh, then is angry with them in verse 34, because they're not listening to him. They're not obeying him. But it's not just that the Lord is a great king and a, and a powerful God who commands people and who pounds his nails. Uh, and so you better listen to him. Um, it's the mercy and grace that he's shown to them. Um, and even his anger was mitigated for their sake. The judgment was mitigated so that they would um you know, that was based on Moses' intercession, that they would uh, they would wander for 40 years, but their children would go in. So they're all, they're, there's this whole kind of theology proper in Deuteronomy, and it kind of begins here, at the beginning of the covenant, covenantal document, the covenant uh, sequence in terms of uh, this uh, covenant renewal being made, we are, are face-to-face with the Lord, 
with Yahweh, who is um, a gracious, merciful God who's who carries them and who takes care of them uh, and who promises to do so if they will obey, of course. And this is going to be carried on all through the book. At the end of the book, of course, there's going to be lots of blessings for for them if they obey and curses if they don't. But it's it's all based on God's acts of salvation and rescue for these people. Yeah, given that, it's it's really shocking to see how the people speak about Yahweh when they refuse to go into the land. Looking at verses 26 and 27, they've gotten a good report. They have the command of God to go in, uh, and yet they're not willing to do it, but rebel against the command of Yahweh. And then verse 27, you grumbled in your tents, and listen, the, the, this is kind of a an invert. It's an inversion of everything that you said about Yahweh, which is what Deuteronomy actually teaches. The Lord hates us. We're not here because He loves us, but He hates us. He's our enemy. He's brought us out of the land of Egypt, so they confess the Exodus. But He brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites. It's a trap. He brought us out of Egypt so we could get stranded in the wilderness and the Amorites could destroy us. Um, in fact, of course, <laughs> Yahweh brought them out of Egypt to deliver the land into their hand, not to deliver them into the hand of the Amorites. And he brought them out of Egypt to so that the Amorites would be destroyed before the Israelites, not so that the Israelites would be destroyed by the Amorites. So everything in verse 27 is the opposite of what's the case. And part of what Moses does in the opening chapters of Deuteronomy is to, uh, to by the time he gets to the end of chapter 4, all of these statements are being reversed. Uh, the Lord chose you, and he loved you. Because he loved you, brought you out of, the, out of Egypt. Because he loved you, and he was faithful to the promise he made to the fathers, he's going to give you the land, and you're going to destroy the Amorites. Uh, but at, at the time of their rebellion, their confession gets exactly, is exactly the opposite. They're, they're, they, don't, they don't know God rightly. Uh, if they had, of course, they would go into the land. Uh, so this um, kind of anti-confession is already uh, must already be operative even before they can say it out loud. They must already be thinking uh, that uh, God is not going to lead us into the land. There's, it's too much. We can't do it. Um, and uh, that's the reason for the rebellion. But it's this their their blindness to the actual character of God is really really striking here. I'm going to go back to the uh, verses 9 through 18, that uh, opening uh, setup of the system of judges, and I'll just make a few observations. I, I don't have any particular conclusions to draw, but a couple of things that I noted. First of all, this trying to think about where what he's summarizing, this event seems to be summarizing a couple of different things that have been recorded earlier. This uh, establishment of a system of judges with Moses as the kind of the supreme judge. That's recounted in Exodus 18. It's something that um, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, suggests. Uh, Moses is wearing himself out, trying to do all of the uh, ruling himself, and so he sets up this system of uh, heads over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. So Exodus 18 is in the background. But verse 9, the, the complaint, I'm not able to bear the burden, uh, which is repeated in verse 12, how can I alone bear the burden? That comes from Numbers, Numbers 11, where he complains to the Lord, um, I can't bear the burden. And then he kind of sh tries to shift responsibility to the Lord by saying, I didn't conceive this people. I didn't give them birth, uh, implying that the Lord did. The Lord is the one who who uh, 
who formed Israel? Why should I be responsible for them if I didn't give them birth? So Moses is conflating these two events, apparently, in, in his retelling of the story. There's also seemed to be a couple of uh, Edenic creational illusions in that in that description. The Lord your God has multiplied you. You are the stars of heaven for multitude. Obviously, that's a reference back to the promise to Abraham that he would have seed like the stars of heaven. Now that's happened. Uh, but the uh, verb multiply takes us back further. It's not just talking about Moses, uh, Abraham rather, but uh, Abraham is established as a recipient of this promise in Genesis uh, as the father, as a new Adam figure. He's the one through whom Adam's calling to multiply and fill the earth is going to be realized. And so behind Abraham is Adam himself. And Israel has become that kind of new humanity, that new Adamic humanity that has multiplied and increased uh, and has become so great that it's a burden for Moses to try to lead them. And then the other thing that verse 12, um, uh, the Moses' description of his situation, he says, how can I alone bear the load and burden of you and your strife? The word alone there uh, is uh, the same word used for Adam being alone in the garden in Genesis 2. Uh, the Hebrew word is bad. Uh, Moses is alone as Adam would. He needs helpers suitable to him. He needs helpers to rule the people. So he he instructs um, the people to choose uh, judges. And they can share the burden, and they become kind of an kind of a uh, kind of an Eve figure assisting uh, Adam in uh, Moses rather in ruling over the people. And just to push that Eden that Eden typology a bit, it does seem like there's a there's a kind of twist on the story of the fall going on at Kadesh. When you think about Eve and the garden. Uh, she has. Before her is a tree with fruit that is good. It's good for food. It's desirable to make one wise. It's delightful to the eyes. All those things are true about the fruit of the tree. Uh, and yet it's been forbidden. So she uh, sins when she seizes that good fruit. Now, there's an emphasis from the account of the spies. They go to the Valley of Eshkol. We remember the account in Numbers where they come back with bunches of grapes that, are, that require two men to carry them. The fruit of the land is abundant. It's a good land, verse 25, which Yahweh is about to give us. Uh, it's a good land, and Israel is supposed to take it. So it's kind of an inversion of Eve's situation. She has something good that she's not allowed to have yet. Israel has something good that they're supposed to just receive from the Lord. He's giving it to them. It's just laying out there for them to take, and they refuse to take it. So you have two different kinds of uh, twists on on sin. It's a sin to see something that the Lord has reserved for himself or see something the Lord is uh, not yet ready to give us. And yet, on the other hand, when he does give it to us, it's just as much a sin <laughs> to refuse to receive it out of fear. The people do it out of fear in this case, but whether that's out of fear or kind of false humility or whatever, if the Lord offers something and uh, we refuse, we're, it's it, tis like another fall of man. Going back to the context of the garden as well, we have that. Um, dichotomy between life and death and this is something that we really see throughout the book of Deuteronomy and I think it's a common theme throughout the law we have it coming out in different ways in relationship to wisdom in um, Proverbs at the very beginning of the book of the Psalms the opening psalm stresses the difference between these two ways we have the same thing in Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in the conclusion the 
two ways, the broad way and the narrow way, the um, house on the rock, the house on the sand. And what we have in Moses' teaching is this choice between life and death. Um, are you going to follow the way of the Lord's word and experience life and blessing in the land? Or are you going to follow the example of those who have gone before and perished in the wilderness and choose the way of death? And that dichotomy is really at the heart of so much of um, the message of, of Moses within this book. Um, we see it in the blessings and the curses. We see it very explicitly in the, the choices that are given, in the self-maledictions that are declared in the curses from Mount Ebal um, later on. And this sense of decision, um, you're standing on the brink and you're about to enter into the land. And those choices that you make will determine one way or another what everything else is going to be like. Um, that sense of decision, that sense of these two ways is one that we find throughout the scripture, but it's very pronounced in the book of Deuteronomy. I wonder if we can push the garden analogy a little more even. So when they sinned, they were banished and exiled from the land, which the Lord would have given them the good land. And then they tried to get back in at the end of Deuteronomy 1. They confess their sin, and so they try to go back and do it themselves. Basically, an encroachment uh, into a land that has been forbidden to them. Uh, and again, similar to Adam and Eve sent out east, they're not allowed back in. There's, there's cherubim with flaming swords that guard the way back in. And those who are going to be let back in are the children who have no knowledge of good and evil, verse 39. So these are children who haven't grasped at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which had, uh, and so they're going to be let back in. But the others who try to encroach the land, basically uh, the land of promise, the holy land, so to speak, they're going to be, or they were, driven out. And just a, maybe a footnote on what we said earlier about uh, what we learned about God here, what we learned about Yahweh, the love and the care and the redemption and the rescue that the Lord gave to his people was followed by anger in verse 34. But then in the end, even when the people confess their sin, uh, and wept before Yahweh, it says Yahweh did not listen to their voice or give ear to them. That's a sobering kind of thought, that you can reach the point in your rebellion where um, the Lord is not going to listen to you, that he's going to give you over to uh, the, uh, the liabilities of your behavior. And so that's here too. Of course, that's, that's, that's also at the core of the vision for Exodus and for and also in Deuteronomy. So, you know, when the Lord shows up, he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in mercy, but he will also not overlook the guilt of rebellious people. Yeah. Just on that last point, um, there's a, there's a, uh, several twists on the verb here that, um, run through that account from verse 34 on to the end of the chapter. 
the people are complaining. They're con- they're confessing that the Lord hates us, that the Lord has trapped us. And verse 34, the Lord heard the words of their complaints, and he becomes angry when he hears. And then when the people go up, Moses warns them. The Lord warns them through Moses. Uh, but verse 43, you would not hear. So the Lord hears their complaint. They don't hear the word of the Lord. And so it's a kind of eye for eye eye for eye judgment when you get to verse 45 and the Lord refuses to listen. The only thing he hears from them uh, is complaint and blasphemy against him. And when he speaks to them, they close their ears. And so by the end of the chapter, he's closed his ears to what they say. And then just another variation on that, there's uh, an accent on hearing when Moses sets up the judges at the beginning of the chapter presiding over a dispute is described as being as hearing cases and they're supposed to listen to supposed to hear the small and the great alike even the alien they're supposed to listen to and if there's too much any case is too difficult they're supposed to take it to Moses and he will hear it so there's this connection between listening hearing passing judgment that's set up in that part of the chapter and then uh, we see the Lord as the judge doing the same in the latter part of the chapter so it's not an eye for eye, it's an ear for ear. Ah, uh, yes. One other thing I was going to uh, add about the uh, the Eden thing. You're, yeah, you're right that it's a it's an exclusion. It's a it's an exile from Eden, from the Eden land, and even the directions, um, the coordinates of the, this event are the same as Eden. Adam and Eve are cast out east of Eden. At Kadesh, Israel is cast out to remain outside of the Eden land to the east for 40 years, and they'll eventually get back in. Kadesh is a kind of uh, sanctuary. Kadesh, the word Kadesh is from Kadash, which means holy or sanctified. Uh, so it's some kind of sanctuary, probably an oasis of some sort that Israel is coming from. So that just enhances the garden uh, the garden setting of this incident. Here's a question uh, that I have. Maybe you guys can answer it. I noticed that in verse 37, Moses says, even with me, Yahweh was angry on your account. Uh, He'll repeat that in chapter 3, verse 26, where he's talking, or this paragraph about Moses being forbidden to enter. uh, he, He asked the Lord, please let me go over. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Don't speak to me on this matter again. But this connection between the rebellion of the Israelites and the judgment on Moses. Now, we know that Moses was angry with the people and he struck the rock. Uh, maybe that's all that's that's being said here is that uh, because you were rebellious, I responded. And so the Lord is angry with me. But it also seems to be some sort of of connection here between the people and Moses that's maybe a little more mystical than that. Yeah, almost vicarious. I mean, the odd thing uh, to me was in verse 37, chapter 1, is that um, in the context, it seems like the Lord is excluding Moses at Kadesh. Uh, This whole generation is going to die. Caleb and Joshua are the only exceptions. Verse uh, 37, not even you shall enter there which of course is not how Numbers recounts it. Uh, Moses is not excluded because of what happened at Kadesh, but Moses is excluded, as you said, because of what he does 
uh, at Meribah, but there's uh, the Meribah and Kadesh are kind of brought together, and Moses is uh, is kind of um, doomed to be excluded by what happened at Kadesh. I mean, one one explanation, which is simple but probably um, too simple. I think Daniel Block. I read this in Daniel Block's commentary. Uh, he suggests that the connection is simply that if K- if there had not been a rebellion at Kadesh, Meribah would never have happened. Have happened. Moses would never have been excluded from the land if the people had obeyed. So the fact that the people are excluded, Moses has to continue leading them. And then during that time, that 40-year period, Moses sins and is excluded from the land. Uh, he projects that back to uh, the incident at Kadesh. That's true, certainly, but uh, I'm not sure that that's all that's happening here. I like the idea of a kind of vicarious suffering. Perhaps another aspect of this is the way in which Moses has interceded for the people, particularly in chapter um, 32 to 34. He's seen their sin in the events of the golden calf, and he's spoken to the Lord on their behalf and um, intermediated between the Lord and the people in their unfaithfulness. And to this point, Moses has been very faithful on his own account. He's praised in chapter 12 of Numbers as the meekest of men, He's someone who is not lifted up in his own opinion. He's not proud. He's really suited for such leadership because of his humility. And to this point, he has been able to intercede for the people and to intermediate because he is different from them. And yet at his sin at Meribah, he acts in the way that has become distinctive of the people. He rebels. He is angry with the Lord. Um, He speaks out rashly. He doesn't treat the Lord as holy. And it's on account of the fact that he is the leader of representing and aligned with such a rebellious people that that behavior can't be forgiven or tolerated. Previously, whereas he'd been able to stand in for the people, um, there's no one to stand in for him. And so he's judged because of his alignment with the people um, at this point. That's one of the ways that I'm inclined to see it. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, I, I think, too, I think I mentioned this in the, the last episode. I, I think, too, that we can see here uh, typological overtones uh, that uh, Moses doesn't get you into the land. Moses himself doesn't get into the land. Moses doesn't inherit the land. If you want to inherit the land, you have to, you have to be of, of the generation, uh, the second generation. Um, and I, I'm, I'm struck by the, the terminology of... Uh, perverse generation or evil generation, verse 35. Uh, That's, as far as I can tell, that terminology is fairly distinctive to Deuteronomy, not exclusive in the Old Testament, fairly distinctive to Deuteronomy. There's a few other places. Psalm 78 uses something like this phrase, but in uh, Deuteronomy 32, 5 and 20, there's a reference to the uh, evil or perverse generation. Jesus, of course, picks up that terminology in Deuteronomy, it's speaking of the older generation that refused to go into the land at Kadesh, and the contrast is with the little ones who are going to inherit the land under Joshua. So there's this movement from one, one generation that's excluded. They have to die in order for the second generation to come in. It seems to me that Jesus has something similar in mind when he talks about the evil and perverse generation. He's not talking about Israel in general although they have a history of being evil and perverse. He's talking about the specific generation that witnessed the, the, uh, 
ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus. And you have the same kind of dynamic. They're attached to Moses. They're insisting on the law, uh, but they're not going to come into the kingdom. Um, and, and that generation, in a sense, has to, has to die off. It's the little ones, the younger of that generation, the incoming Gentiles who are like younger brothers who are going, going to inherit the kingdom, uh, and, and not the older generation of Jews who have rejected the kingdom when it comes. So what, it seems like what Jesus does uh, in his coming is, as it were, stands at the board of the land. There's a Kadesh moment in his ministry, and uh, much of the Jewish leadership and many of the Jews refuse to enter, and only those who attach themselves to this new Joshua are going to enter the kingdom and enjoy the full promise. Yeah, we might say that there's a Plains of Moab kind of situation then for Paul and for the apostles. That language is picked up in Philippians 2.15 as well. We're called to be innocent and blameless and children of God uh, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That surely in the context of Philippians has to do with uh, the apostate, with apostate Israel and the church uh, in the midst of that generation. We're supposed to shine as lights in the world. We've talked about the the way that the rebellion at Kadesh leads to the exclusion of Israel, uh, analogous to the exclusion of Adam and Eve from Eden. This generation will not enter the Eden land. Uh, but in a sense, it's even worse than that. It's not just that they're prevented from entering, but by the end of the chapter, well, uh, Jeff, Jeff mentioned this effort to try to conquer without the Lord fighting for them. That's another, that's another, uh, their repentance and their uh, uh, their confession of sin and their repentance turns out to be another. It co- it compounds the sin. Their refusal to enter is compounded by their attempt to enter uh, wrongly, uh, disobediently. So timing is all. If uh, if they don't enter at the time that the door is open, then they're excluded. But it, it's not just exclusion, but it's a kind of it's a false kind of conquest. It's a counterfeit conquest. Instead of bees chasing the Amorites, which is what the Lord is going to promise that the bees are going to chase their enemies around. They get chased away as, as if by bees. And instead of uh, completing the exodus, they're rough, heading back to the Red Sea, verse 40. Even before they attempt to go into the land, the Lord says, turn around and set up for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. So there's a, a reversal of the exodus. There's a reversal of the journey to Kadesh. Uh, the first verse of chapter 2, we again have a reference to the Red Sea. We turned around and set out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me, and circled Mount Seir for many days. So it's a it's a reverse conquest. It's an inversion of the Exodus. History kind of unravels for them. Instead of coming to its completion, history kind of goes into reverse. And then you have the really striking image in verse 1 of chapter 2 of them spending spending years and years just, just circling around Mount Seir, uh, which is a pretty fruitless thing to do. They're not making headway toward the land. We're just waiting to die off, uh, and you have this this picture of a reversal and then stasis, and time goes in reverse, and then time go, kind of goes into a uh, time becomes static. There's no progress for Israel for forty years, uh, and that's all the consequence of their rebellion because they don't take advantage of the opportunity that they're given, and because they uh, insult Yahweh by talking about his uh, his hatred for them and his uh, his. Uh, Cunning and trying to trap them in the Exodus. For that reason, they're they're uh, they're thrown into reverse.
Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.